Welcome to the Economy of Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Mark Anielski. Today, I'm very honored to have Chief Larry Salt on my show in conversation about the future of Turtle Island, of Indigenous people, of sovereignty for First Nations. I met Larry only recently through a network of friends. Larry is a remarkable human being having suffered great physical and mental abuse as a child growing up in Mississauga area in Ontario. Larry is a former chief of the Mississaugas of the New Credit in Ontario and also the Grand Chief of the Six Nations, which include the Mississaugas of the New Credit. He also has roots to the Mohawk and the Iroquois Haudenosaunee uh, nations through his grandmother. He spent more than a decade in the Silicon Valley in the financial industry. Mr. Salt brings 25 years of dynamic leadership working with First Nations in Canada, Native American tribes in the United States, the Arctic, the Inuit, the Maori of New Zealand, the Aborigines of Australia. He has held key positions in political leadership, private sector corporations, and nonprofit organizations. He created what's called Salt Mines. His name is spelled S-A-U-L-T, like Sault Ste. Marie. Salt Mines is a business focused on monetizing the development of First Nation lands, creating commercial innovations unique to the First Nation communities, and managing First Nations wealth to the betterment of today, tomorrow, and generations to come. The company's business model is to fund and commercialize opportunities that are unique to Indigenous peoples and provide the support and infrastructure to go to market successfully. I hope you enjoy this lovely conversation with Larry Salt about what's possible for Canada, Ganata, what's possible when we imagine and reimagine a new relationship of harmony, of working together, of imagining a new financial architecture that realizes what I've been writing about, a well-being economy that could be absolutely implemented today in our communities, in our First Nation communities, in Ontario, in Quebec, and elsewhere. Thanks for joining Larry and I today and for listening to my podcast. Please share some of this good news with friends and neighbors to enliven a conversation full of hope and well-being. I guess in terms of sort of futuristic, in terms of uh, our next seven generations, mm-hmm. we basically cannot start in the middle of a movie. We have to go back to understand the process from day one, 1867 prior to, and uh, obviously in comes uh, John A. Macdonald, Sir John A. Macdonald, the first mm. prime minister. Right. There was a lot of things happening before that time. And, and basically, you know, uh, here we are in 2021. We know that statues, uh, statues of uh, Sir John A. Macdonald is being challenged right now and, and torn down across the country. We know sort of we see in North America and the U.S. a lot of the icons of, of history is being challenged with the uh, different races, uh, different things that's happened over the years. So I, mm. so we really have to go back to square one, I think, in terms of, in terms of talking about the history of Canada and the, the whole legacy of First Nation and how we become so dependent today. 
in 2021. And basically, uh, John A. McDonald was, he's, he's basically, uh, I guess, idolized by most Canadians, but not so idolized by the First Nations of this country because of the railways that he wanted to put from coast to coast to, to the Pacific, the whole Indian residential school process, starvation of the natives on the plains, uh, loss of uh, the buffalo and all of those things that have uh, been tormenting to the First Nation community. And it was all based on, on uh, I, I, I guess what I'll call a superior mindset. And uh, of course, the view that we were savages, our First Nation people were savages. That whole historical content plays into today. And uh, I say starting from history because, because we have to understand the, the, the timelines and nothing's changed. I mean, today <laughs> here we are in 2020 and not much has changed at all. Right, right. It didn't matter whether you had a progressive conservative like John A. MacDonald or a liberal government. The liberals uh, sort of hacked while they were in the House of Commons about Sir John A. Macdonald. When he was out, he come back in and picked up on the liberals' agenda and started moving forward. So, so we really have to go back to square one and to start to talk about that. And uh, you know, if you're uh, you're talking about well-being, we can't really, in my view, we we got to really deal with the with the the wound it's from way back historical well-being. Uh, process right okay so uh larry do you want to just introduce yourself uh larry salt who or sue depending how s-a-u-l-t uh you're the former grand chief of the mississauga credit uh first nation and uh you're uh, you're based in ontario and just a quick introduction and and then we'll yeah. keep going because i want to i want to build on what you said and go back all the way back to the doctrine of Christian dis uh, discovery and all that that led to uh, the subjugation that still continues in Turtle Island. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Larry Salt, I'm, uh, I'm former chief of the Mississaugas of New Credit First Nation here in southern Ontario, right next door to Six Nations of the Grand River, the Iroquois community that originally originated in the United States and uh, our nation historically, the Mississauga Nation uh, gave land for the uh, Six Nation Iroquois to come across the border into Canada and we now live uh, beside each other. I'm also a former Grand Chief, Deputy Grand Chief of the Association of Iroquois and Allied Indians. Spent uh, three years in deputy position, three years as Grand Chief. Ran for National Chief in 97, been involved in every national campaign since 1994. I was a candidate in 97 for National Chief. Uh, spent many years in Ottawa with uh, respect to lobbying MPs, et cetera. So I, I've been around for a while. And I guess more notably, I've been involved in the economics and the banking industry and finance and uh, sort of concerned about where we're, where's the future of finance? Where's mm -hmm. the future of our First Nations in this country? So just a quick blurb of who I am. Right. So, um, so Larry, you, you were talking about, you know, going back to John A and even before John A, I think we could point to the, uh, uh, well, the, the success, I would say, of the, the British Empire and its uh, codification of law and the, and the doctrine of Christian discovery that not many Canadians know about uh, as kind of the, um, the, the guidebook, I, I guess, or the handbook for how 
those systems dominated indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. Yeah, that, that whole doctrine of discovery and uh, terra nullius be, became a big, those are the questions today that even our own people, and I'm more concerned about our next generation coming after us, not knowing anything about that. So we really have an education process based on doctrine of discovery and terra, terra nullius. So, so back uh, when I first got involved in, in politics, I never got involved. My ancestors, my great uncles, my dad, my grandfather were all uh, involved here. And I, I was never a fan of uh, doing anything because my dad did anything. You know, I, as a matter mm. of fact, I hated my dad. If you read our book, you'd know. Oh, I, I read I, your book. Oh I had absolute goodness. disgust for my dad. And uh, yeah. I mean, we made amends before he passed. It wasn't like we, we died. He died enemies. Mm. We made amends. But uh, I never did things because my ancestors did. Hmm. I got involved in uh, in politics, strangely enough, because I was an alcoholic. And uh, after I sobered up in 1981, in 1985, uh, basically, I when I was a drunk, they wanted to banish me from the community. Some people wanted to banish me. I mean, I was a brutal drunk. I was a I, I, I was full of hate. Hmm. Uh, some people wanted to banish me from the community. So you sort of understand the legacy. And then yeah. and, uh, by 1985, uh, the federal government was talking about, uh, um, because there was so much alcoholism in First Nation communities at the time, including a lot of chiefs and council members were going to assemblies and drinking and just a lot of stuff was going on at the time. Mm. But in four years of sobriety, the chief had asked me if I would sit on a committee with Health Canada to negotiate a drug and alcohol treatment center for 14 communities. So in the process of that year, two years, I sat on that committee, uh, I realized that, uh, you know, there was opportunity to deal with policy development at the community level and argue policy from our perspective to the federal government. Well, those dreams basically uh, got me into politics. That's why I ran. I never ran for no other reason except the fact that we could influence policy, mm. uh, at least in my naive brain, right? Mm. I realize here we are 35 years later, <laughs> the art stick has moved very little. And when I, when I go back and look at John A. McDonald, the policies are still the same assimilation policies in, that's in process today. Mm. Nothing has changed. The language has changed a little bit. The era has changed. The presentation has changed, but the goal is still the same. Yeah, and where, where do you think that? I mean, was it just? We're speculating here. Is did did that assimilation policy originate from John A.'s mind, or do you think it originated elsewhere? Well, I, as far as I understand, it it did originate elsewhere, but he picked up on it obviously, and. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, some, I guess there's some, uh, at least I've heard some of our people talk about the uh, arrogance of the uh, European mindset in terms of Great Britain and we our treaties is with Great Britain and that sort of superior mindset. And when you look at sort of the origins of, uh, of John A. MacDonald, he was, he was basically from the elites, if, if you will, in, uh, in uh, Glasgow, New England, I believe, or England. I'm not sure yeah. if that's Scotland. That's the history as I understand it. Yeah. He was so Scottish. our elders and some of our people talked about that arrogance spilling over into the mindset today that's still around. So, some of the elders that, you know, when I said uh, 
in conversation with some um, wisdom keepers that the when I say the square mile, the square mile of London, they uh, their ears perk up, and I said, "Are you talking about a, 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 an area called a square mile, or you're talking about the corporation of London, where all the banks are situated, where the Magna Carta gave rise to the corporation?" Right. And I think following that little thread uh, is pretty interesting because having studied money and banking. Uh, it feels like all roads do lead to Londinium, the old Roman fort, uh, which has been the, the source of money power in the world. Most people don't understand. It's not New York. It's uh, Londinium. And it is my supposition that through the art of accounting and banking protocols, I believe the treaties actually aren't necessarily signed with the crown, in fact, the uh, under the Magna Carta, the corporation called Lon London, um, which would change everything if that's true, because it would mean that through accounting protocols, they have, in a sense, collateralized all the assets, all the natural assets of Turtle Island, which may be the reason why in the public sector handbook of accounting in Canada, uh, there's a statement which says there's been a longstanding prohibition against the treatment of natural resources as the legitimate assets even on the balance sheet of Canada, <clears throat> which again begs the question, well, in whose interest would that be convenient or advantageous? Right, so, so I guess one of the challenges that I've always had as I've, as I've sort of grown in uh, First Nation politics is this whole issue of uh, uh, church versus state and a separation of church and state. Mm. And I, I, I learned very quickly in our world, even today in 2021, that we've never separated. The indigenous people has never separated church and state in the white man's so-called mm -hmm. mind of mm -hmm. church and state. We have continuously stayed. The connecting factor has always been there. That is the creator and creation. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and when our elders talk about uh, uh, not having ownership capacity, the elders... This just in my heart just exploded when I heard the elders <laughs> talk about about ownership capacity and stewardship capacity. They said that we were never given human beings were never given ownership capacity. Our children, our wives, our families, and if we could learn this, even in our world today in twenty twenty one, our indigenous peoples, if we could learn this, we've adopted a lot of the white man ways. But if we could learn that we don't have ownership capacity, I am sure that we would have less family problems. We would have, uh, and we understood stewardship that I don't own my wife. I don't mm -hmm. own my children. I have a, 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 the authority to be a steward over them and help and guide them along the way. That's what we're missing. And we've, we've missed that, that heritage from yesteryear and our elders into today. And when you look at this whole concept of not having uh, ownership capacity, the white man comes in and he said, separate church and state. And yes, we own this, we own this asset uh, resource in your territories. Well, first of all, you don't own the territories. And first of all, <laughs> you go back to the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius that nobody was here. That's sort of the foundation of where we are today. And as we come forward and then sort of all of those teachings 
were we didn't we were we never starved. Our our ancestors never starved. The white man called us nomadic. We wasn't nomadic. Our ancestors followed the hunt. That's right. Followed the hunt, and that was survival. Everybody survived. Everybody had part of that wealth. You call it wealth. Yeah, being. That, everyone had a share in it. Yeah. Yes. So it wasn't the white man's concept of savages and and they didn't have homes and uh, you know we were mobile we were we followed with the seasons we lived with the seasonal changes and we've missed that now in this uh, this whole world that we're in now well i i think you've nailed it in a sense even now in this pandemic we've um we've lost sight of the attribution as to the creator i mean it, if we don't defer the creator as <laughs> as all giving and and, and abundant I just listened to Robin <clears throat> Kimmer talk on a podcast about this very subject, <clears throat> about how mm-hmm. e- economics, she says, if you read the, the definition of economics on the American Economic Society, it says it's a study of scarcity. It's, a, you know, it, which is not, not true. I mean, nature is inherently abundant um, and resilient. Right. And right. the attribution and that, is always to the creator and, and thanks for the abundance. And so that's why I say that our elders, and right to 2021, they've never separated church and state. They've always kept that whole concept. There is no lack in creation. The Creator didn't didn't create <laughs> this global, uh, this whole uh, uh, world, and all the dynamics of the world, the dynamics of our body. He didn't create us in lack. That's he created right. Created us in abundance. Yeah, I said he created us out of love. So love is abundance. And, yes. And so where, so going back to this inherent, let's call this inherent spirit of scarcity of, of lack, right? And and then that translates into control or force versus I love the word power in French to be able, versus force, right? And um, what what do your indigenous um ways counsel us now in this this time when we're at a very serious crisis i think in in so many ways or all of our economic financial systems are i think at the in a near-death kind of experience um where how do we move how do we move forward in, in an indigenous way and I have given a lot of thought to that, and uh, my biggest my biggest challenge is uh, coming trying to come out of the system myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we a... have... <laughs> go ahead. No, no, I was, I'm just laughing with you because I'm colonized too. I'm part of the system, right? Part of the matrix. <laughs> We're all born into it, right? So. Right. So I, I and I guess uh, you know when we talk about uh, uh, I. My issue is, I guess, is uh, our community has been so colonized, our communities, right here in my home community, chiefs and councils across this country, but it was all based on dependence, on dependence on a government, on dependence on another man, on dependence on a, on a co- corporation. That's my problem. And, uh, you know, every time, uh, and I'm telling you, this is 30 years now, I was, uh, you know, I was a missionary. And... Uh, the, the heads of the missionary, the heads of the groups that I was hanging out with at the time were pretty influential people. 
Yeah. And uh, these guys basically said, you know, Larry, we, we've never seen an Indian like you. You know, you want to, I dressed, I dressed apart. My shoes were shined, tie right to the max. Wow. They said, they said, we've never seen an Indian like you. We're going to make you something in this country. As soon as they said that, turn me right off. Just turn me right off. I said, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if I'm going to be anybody, I'm going to allow the creator to be because he'll pull the rug out from under me. If, if I get too big for my britches or if whatever, you'll pull the rug out from under me. You're not my source and I'm not going to let you be my source. Yep. And that's how I feel about politics. That's how I feel about the prime minister and their policies and government and trying to find my way through the process here. Mm. So I don't know if that makes sense at all. But, well, but, but we can't, th this whole dependency issue is, uh, it's almost like the chiefs are in such a, such a position that, yeah, they want to talk nationhood. Yeah, they want to break out. But if they break out, and this is well proven, it's very well documented from, from uh, the national chiefs. Any national chief that stood against the federal government, Ovid Mercury, good example, Ovid stood up against the federal government, they, they cut his budget big time. Another oh, yeah. national chief comes in and agrees with him, up the budget big time. Another, math, another Matthew Kuncum came in as a national chief and started standing up for the rights-based agenda, cut his budget. That's how they function. Right. And that's what First Nations are afraid of in terms of this whole dependency policy-oriented society we're in. So the last time we spoke, we speaking of uh, transcending or transmuting this <laughs> uh, colonial system, uh, which I believe is, is predicated on accounting protocols and rules, which we've, uh, we just accept. Um, we, we talked about the, uh, the pathway to true sovereignty uh, of uh, even that word is problematic because it, you know, it, it means some type of ruler or king or queen. But it sovereignty in the sense of um, independent, uh, verifiable wealth funds that are unique to any individual First Nation, and we we spoke about that in my work with uh, Opasquia Cree Nation in Manitoba, as maybe um, a pilot in that to to at least demonstrate the possibility that we or the First Nations can in fact pursue. Uh, sovereignty through the creation of these more comprehensive wealth funds. Um, so when I so I can point to Singapore uh, or uh, Norway. I won't point to Alberta because we fumbled the ball on our on our sovereign oil fund, big time. But uh, that's another story. Mm -hmm. So what what are your thoughts in terms of you know the pursuit of uh, literally saying, look, we yes, you've been we've been colonized for all this time and you withdraw our budgets, but at some point we're going to move. And, and, and I could say this with some authority that you can begin to account for these, these assets, cultural assets, natural assets, even territorial land assets is legitimate on, on the balance sheet. And if you're account, counting your auditors uh, refuse to do so, then hire another one that will do so because it's not now it's within the realm of possibility. I know that from the accounting standards in Toronto. So what, what are your thoughts in terms of how we, uh, how we pursue that possibility? 
Well, again, I think, you know, I've given a lot of thought over the years in terms of these mountains that we have to climb. And all of the mountains that we have to climb are all interconnected. You got all these, uh, all these yeah. um, tentacles, if you will. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's sort of part and parcel of the bigger picture. And, you know, when you talk about uh, community level, data becomes a big issue. You as an economist are a data collector. I'm yeah. assuming, uh, you know, a lot of the government departments are data collectors. The problem with data collectors is, 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 is you go to census. So in terms of some of the work mm. that you do, uh, you know, I, I, I think I told you, you and I, uh, when we talked last week, um, I asked a question about government statistics versus statistics that, that you've got from the community level. Right, I have, yes. I have problems with the data coming out of any government, whether it's a Manitoba government or whether it's a federal government. I have problems with that. Why? It's because not all of our people, and in fact, most of our people, we do not vote in federal elections, provincial elections. Today in 2021, the data, we do not fill out census, census. census issues. Those are problematic when it comes from the government because now you're, you're collecting data that's false. Well, that you don't even exist. I mean, I just had this conversation with the Comox uh, uh, chief in, in Vancouver Island this week, and we laughed. I said, "Did you have you ever received a short or long census form? Because 2021 is our census year. And, and she says, not that I recall. Mind you, we have dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is well taken. As an economist, I rely on the census data to provide a, a community well-being profile. Right. Now, so if you're going, my only point to that is this, if you're going to have a profile from, from the community, then it can't be, it has to be strictly from the community and not anybody else's data. Yeah. And that data really, the question becomes who owns the data? Once you do what you do, who owns the data? Yeah. And the nation for, for my purposes, we have uh, the makings, possibly the first, a treaty in Canada that will make well-being the heart of the treaty where the data is owned by the nation, by the people, because those are the conditions which they fill out my customized well-being survey that the data is held uh, in trust by the community at large. Yeah. So now the, the interesting thing is, you know, I'm smart enough to know that I can ask similar questions as the census form asks of Canadians uh, on that customized uh, survey of the First Nation. Uh, so at the very least, we can say, you know, if you want to compare us, uh, here's a comparative statistic, but we actually have unique attributes of our culture, our traditions, our language, our traditional use practices, right? That are unique assets and therefore require a unique form of inventory that's only unique to us. And, and the Mi'kmaq have their own, right? And the Ojibwe have their own. Um, so right. I think that's, that's pretty exciting. So we don't have this kind of necess necessity of a common set of indicators. We just have some that are comparable. So uh, here in 2010 or 2011, Six Nations and New Credit, both communities did an economic leakage study. And they, in their leakage study, they put the methodology there, how they arrived at the statistics. But interesting to me on this economic leakage study, the reason that the economic leakage study was done was because 
because the communities wanted to see how much money that we actually bring in and how much money goes out. Right. And uh, anyways, the leakage study was done. And my point to raising that is, is uh, out, of, out of all of the homes in both communities, only 20% of the people responded to the survey. 80% did not respond. Opted out, yeah. Opted out. They did so not respond. It's an invalid study. Well, it's an inv- not only is it an invalid, well, it can give us some well, markers. It gives in, us in some, some information, sure. But. Yes. So, so in this, just in the study itself, they, they figured that there was like, uh, I think they said $390 million a year goes out of the territory. In other words, all of our monies is leaking out of the territory, not being put back into the community. Right. Yeah. It's going out to all of the, uh, all of the stores off with the Walmart services and, and yeah, all of the stores, everything that we buy was recorded like uh, pencils wow. and papers, rubbers, office equipment, televisions, <laughs> cars, everything. And here's the interesting point. So the 20% that did fill out the survey, I think it was something like, $367 million going out of the every year from the territory. Okay, so you take the other 80%, if those facts are anywhere near close, and we look at the other 80%, then that's a billion dollars leaking out of two, just two communities. Yeah, yeah. Across the country. So when I look at that, I just say, okay, it's this is all leaking out. And the whole argument is Indians, Indians are on the dole and we don't spend oh, yeah, we don't. Yeah. All of that whole uh, muddy water stuff, it's like, hang on. Okay, so what if we kept that money internally? And we really have to have this nation, nation to nation commerce, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's those, just some things I think that we got those mountains that we have to climb. Yeah. In no. terms of natural resources at our community level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what COVID is actually a blessing in a way because it's it's uh i think amplified the importance of local economy and local supply chain you know no matter where we live really it's uh i think that's a good thing i mean amazon aside (laughs) the dominance of those kind of uh, bms but well here we are living i'm talk about amazon right here we are living in 2021 and we have all these sort of tentacles to deal with and we live in what uh, what America is deeming as a cancel culture right now, because of uh, if I say something wrong on YouTube yeah. or you know they cancel me out. If I say something wrong on Twitter, they cancel me out. What do we do with those connecting factors? Those are all sort of the other bigger picture of connecting factors in our territories in 2021. So I mean, there's there's so much so much to deal with in terms of uh, moving forward. The biggest issue for me is policy. Yes. We can't build anything on Canadian policy. So if we're talking nationhood, if we're talking uh, whether it's a banking institution, financial institution, whatever we're talking, we have to we have to develop our own regulatory regime on financial institutions that will basically go into the international market just like uh, the uh, institutions that exist as we speak. Yeah. So we touched on that last time we spoke. Can you walk me through kind of, you know, give me a, give me a story, give me a narrative of in five years from now, you're, we're walking in what you envision. What, what might that look like? I'm still wrestling with that. 
What? Uh, you know, I mean, I've uh, I've listened to uh, some of the some of the scholars in economics. Uh, Jim Rickards. I don't know if you follow Jim Rickards. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like uh, I like to listen to what he has to say. I know he's spoken in Canada and different functions, mm-hmm. and basically uh, he talks about confidence. Confidence is a really big issue. I don't Absolutely. have confidence in the dollar right now. No, well, I never have because I know it's backed by nothing but faith, really. Okay, so so then the real because question it, when we that that that's that's the great aha maybe on this podcast is I keep saying the value of the U.S. dollar, the Canadian dollar, isn't supported by any assets whatsoever. It was all created out of a debt a debt instrument, either a, a loan from a bank or a bond that governments or corporations issued has nothing to do with the underlying assets of turtle island right so that changes everything that means that we constructed this illusionary tool called a dollar to for transaction but if it's not based on real assets or wealth then surely we can do better and that's my point i think we i thought we talked sort of around the globe uh, yeah when you and i talked a couple days ago and one of the things I've, I've been adamant with our community here, we uh, have, have every right based on our, we have a trust, we have two trusts and probably most of those, most of the monies were, were in the range of $200 million. Mm-hmm. Under the trusts, we have a certain percentage that says we can buy alternative investments. I have been after our community to say, let's buy $10 million in gold bullion. Yeah, of course, our financial managers and investment managing group is going to argue, no, no, you don't want to do that. That's Why? right. Why? Why? Exactly. Because you're taking $8 million or $10 million out of their hands and that fees are involved the in all fee- of that. It, yep. There you go. So we have to create, I mean, with all due respect to the Scotias and the TDs and, you know, the your your wealth managers or advisors, right? Uh, right. They're, they're absolutely feeding themselves. Like, you know, they know the game is about fees. Uh, but at some point we have to empower and educate our own homegrown analysts that manage the funds according to the, to the values of the elders. Uh, or, you know, whether, whether it should be gold or not is, could be, of course, debatable. Right, but, right, whatever. But I'm but saying... At least, uh, yeah, I have else? confidence right now. I have confidence in gold bullion in my hand. Absolutely. It's I've fungible. held it in my hand. I've <laughs> held the bar in my hand and said, I have confidence in this. Yeah. Well, I, and I explained, like, isn't it interesting whether it's your own individual RSP portfolio that they preclude us from holding real assets like land or property or gold or silver in our RSP? Why would that be? Right. Why am I excluded from owning real things I can I know is fungible in that yes. yes. But no, I'm I'm forced into a, a, the casino called the stock market or the bond markets, which are also casinos, or uh, and to pl- speculate with everybody else. But even in the bond markets, I mean, you really don't have nothing. You have nothing. It's it's, it's illusionary. Yeah. And so, then you have, so, yeah. Go ahead. So so the point what I'm trying to. Uh, explore then is if a fund and money were be attached to the land, right? To uh, sweet grass or whatever, uh, plants and medicines, the moose, right? Uh, at least 
to the extent that we know that we can we know that those those in, those assets are valuable to us as culture um, as food as all those other things that contribute to well-being then i'm convinced we can create such accounts uh, even within the system which we think is precluding us from doing that that's my point there's no fence anymore the fence is artificial and i've been told that by the standards board in toronto the you know the professional accounting standards board that prohibition against the treatment of natural resources i was told is just a statement which can be walked around and this is where chief christian sinclair is saying are you sure mark we can just ignore it i'm like yes I was given literally permission by this head of the standards board in Toronto. Uh, and what does that mean? It means that the First Nation now can treat natural resources, at least within its reserve land, if not its territorial land, as legitimate assets. So, uh, so when you talk about, if we look at 2020, just in last year, yeah. from coast to coast, we see the lobster fishing issue in the East Coast. In Quebec, we see... Uh, uh, limits on uh, prohibitions on moose hunting. If we look at British Columbia, it's oil and gas, Alberta, yeah. like all of those natural resources. What do they have to do with indigenous community? Well, you know what? That's our, <laughs> that's our sustenance. Yes, exactly. However, however, policies that come out of Ottawa, policies that come out of Bay Street, policies that come out of the stock exchange, all of the financial policies put restrictions on us when it comes to dealing with lobster fishery. And then we got the white man who's, who's now creating war with the, with the lobster fishermen in the Atlantic for obvious reasons without trying to come to terms with that. So again, it's those tentacles. It's like, okay, no matter what natural resource we talk about, government policy has their, their hands on natural resources. Unless a chief and council has got the kahunas to stand up and say this is the way we're going we're so, not asking you permission right this so is the way we want to invite you to work with us but we are not asking you for permission so what what i'm envisioning now is that uh the fence is gone like the reserve fence never existed and and we're moving uh we're moving with or without the blessing of of canada um, I say we, saying those nations who have the kahunas to do so. Yep. And, and we know exactly what the strike point is for the balance sheet of the nation to reveal enough assets for it to be completely uh, independent of the federal transfer. Because we know how big that transfer dependency is. You know, it's 70, 80% of revenues are still from the federal transfer from uh, Indigenous services. So that to me is the sight line in if I were to advise, as now you can write policy, uh, accounting protocols, uh, strategic planning, you know, all of that stuff, and laws, of course, codified uh, as critical steps in that direction. What do, what do you what do you think of that aspiration? Is that the right path when we're talking about addressing the shortcoming or the the constraint of policy? I think I think it's the right path, and maybe we could capitalize on that with the whole uh, uh, natural climate solutions. Uh, this this era that we're in right now, when we talk about uh, carbon offsets, the sequestration of carbon offsets in a forest, 
when we talk about carbon offsets in the in the peak lands. Yeah. British Columbia, for instance, has major, major carbon. They've the, the Great Bear Project in British Columbia has That's millions right. and millions of dollars worth of carbon, but they can't sell it. They can't. It's a That's right. Real, cha real challenge now is trying to find a bankable bankable solution to and, the whole carbon. And years ago, I, I call it the greatest, I call it the big carbon con. And I'm a forester. Yeah. Because the reason I think it's a con because it's the same system of colonization. It's the same hoodwinking or, okay, now we're gonna treat, you know, climate emergency or whatever as, uh, and, then, and then we're going to believe that we can actually count the carbon in the standing timber. You know, right. we, can't even, we can't even count how many trees are standing in this country, let alone count the carbon contained in yeah. them. So th this, this then, we see when push comes to shove, there are very few, if ever, any real trades in the carbon market that occur. Right. Because it takes so much money. Ask the, the folks in Quebec uh, about how much it costs to verify carbon so that they can even have a hope of a trade with California. Yeah. So no trades actually going on. People are, a lot of hot air, sorry. It's a funny metaphor, a lot of hot air about carbon. But, um, but at the same time, I would argue the First Nation uh, in the Great, uh, great Bear Rainforest uh, has the responsibility of having its balance sheet properly assessed in terms of its indigenous understanding of those assets. Right. Uh, some of them are always going to be non-market. There'll be no carbon market for, you know, um, various berries and plants there, and nor should there ever be. Um, but the value of not cutting the forest is revealed in even that choice is in a sense the inverse valuation of those plants yeah so so that's so, that that becomes interesting from an accounting perspective right so i think uh i think in terms of starting somewhere the, we just have to do it we just have to do it we have to find out the value in the territory like uh, in the forests yeah whether it's peak lands or forest lands and uh, the value of the natural climate assets that's there whether we go under the climate uh, the whole green energy movement that we're in yeah however we do it but we, we still have to be able to determine what are our assets and how are we going to take that value and put it into what and yeah. put it something that has the confidence right other than a dollar bill, but but again, we're in this we're in this whole system where these tentacles are all sort of part and parcel interconnected. And it's really that's the challenge of trying to think through some of this stuff. Oh, it's huge, and I've been told by uh, our friend Val Napoleon, who's Indigenous Law in Victoria. She's Cree from Alberta. You know, is that you you can't? There's no shortcut to uh, we have. First Nations have to codify their own laws to have equal standing in the court, even the court, the court of the colonizer, but except for the, with the exception of spiritual laws. So I think that's the first step to then writing policy that says these are aligned with our laws. Um, well, I think spiritual laws has to take predominance in this thing. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole factor is a whole spiritual element of, uh, you know, the, the elders have said, the, you know, not trying to take things out of context, but the elders have said, everything is living. 
everything is living. A tree is living. A plant is living. That's a spiritual concept of life giving, right? And it's like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We have to build a foundation from that perspective and uh, be able to put that in a constitutional form, if you will, on uh, our own processes. I know that uh, I was involved in, and I took the, uh, the uh, Native American uh, uh, Harvard, the Harvard economics, uh, three times I did it. Once in, uh, when I was chairing the National Task Force on Access to Capital, we at, uh, went to the University of British Columbia the government handpicked 26 chiefs from across the country to take the Native American Harvard project uh, <laughs> yeah. a concept and go through that for three or four days. We were spent five days, I think, in uh, University of British Columbia to break it down and to look at it from a Canadian context. Unanimously, pretty much unanimously, 26 of us all said it won't work here. Wow. It won't work here. It won't work here because because the American Indian and Congress in the United States has a different view of, of sovereignty than Canada does. Right. And with the whole capitalistic mindset that Americans, it's really interesting when you live in the United States and you meet, you meet a native, he calls himself American Indian. He's American first. That's right. Indian, right. Indian but Second. for us, for us, we're, no, I don't, I don't even call myself a Canadian. When I go through the U.S. border, I'm a North American Indian. I am not a Canadian. Wow. That's the problem. And that's sort of all of the regulatory stuff. If my passport says Canadian or other, I always put other. So, so, so on, on that question, which is really important, um, who do you think has a better chance, the, the American Indian or the, the First Nation uh, North American Indian of Canada in terms of moving forward on this stewardship and sovereignty front? I would probably say that uh, if, I guess the question really remains is if you want to work with the government or you do you want to have true sovereignty? That's the real question. Yeah, right, right. Because yeah. right now, because of the American Indian and how they're advancing, they have a working relationship from a huge corporate perspective, mm. working with the province, working with the states and with the feds. Feds, yeah, so they yeah, have right. a different working relationship where they would say, "We're way ahead of you guys," and they are in some fronts. Mm -hmm. So it's a real question of, I don't know if I even want to answer that. Because, <laughs> no, because it's, it's about it's about a working relationship with the powers that be, which is so, fascinating. Now, well, it is fascinating or, enough. If, or lions might disagree. Or lions agree. Yeah. To answer your question, I would probably say the American, the American Indian would have a would have a better chance of doing, maybe moving into a uh, an era that we're talking about because of the corporate mindset that they have already and the whole concept of sovereignty. So you're part of the Iroquois and Iroquois Confederacy or nations. Um, what do you think uh, Grand Chief Sid Hill or Orrin Lyons of the Onondaga would say about what you just said? I think that they'd say, uh, yes, we do have a good chance of doing that. And we're doing it as a nation, as the Onondaga nation. They are doing because, it. You're right. Because some, some nations are doing it. Well, they, I, yeah, they may get some resistance, but I don't think they're getting the resistance that we may be experiencing here. Why? Well, I'd agree. Having visited them, they said we've, you know, we're proud because we've never taken a dime of federal or state money. Uh, yeah. 
and we have pursued our asset uh, investment strategies based on our laws, uh, whether it's tobacco or, um, you know, own foods production. Uh, lots. Keep of- in mind, though, that they they have they have both the Confederacy, the hereditary chief system, and they have the elected system as well. Right, right. And they still have the matrilineal. Can you talk about the advantages of a matrilineal? Um, well, the, the whole matri- the whole matrilineal side. I mean, it's it's really about your clan. It's a clan system now, right? Right. So, so the it's it's uh, I guess one of the biggest things that in 2021 that that even our own people don't understand is we're so into uh, the elected system process we forgot about our clan system in terms of roles and responsibilities of women, Mm -hmm. of men, of children, and how we all interact, how we all, those strengths and, and abilities that we all have. I, I obviously know that I have a different personality than my wife. And if her and I, (laughs) pretty obvious, right? if, If her and I didn't understand you know, I mean, we fought like cats and dogs for the first 10 years of our marriage. We're, we're near 50 years together now. And I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes and we've argued our point, but you know what? After, the, after 10 years of fierce, I mean, prison cell, me going to prison. Oh, I, for, I read a little, for, I read almost your whole story, but I was like, <laughs> congratulations, 50 years. That's, that's but a survivor, man. <laughs> but it's really understanding. I mean, it's, it's uh, I guess the best thing that I can say is we've learned what relationship means. Right, right. We've, Thank we've, you. We've learned our roles and responsibilities. I've learned what the elders have taught us is I don't have ownership capacity. You're free to do whatever you want. <laughs> the, the world is yours, right? Yeah. And, and when we talk about that spiritual inherent ability on the inside, Nobody has to ever tell us what's right and what's wrong. We got a, I call an internal knower on the inside. If I violate my relationship with my wife internally, I already know. You know. (laughs) I'm violating myself by doing that. So when we talk about the clan system and, Mm. and the roles and responsibilities within that clan system, they all understood it back then. And there is some that's still around that understands it today. And that, that, that's what, you know, I like, I always love to end on uh, like what gives you hope. And for me, that's why you're the first um, um, Eastern in, indigenous person. I think I've spoken to on, on this podcast and reminding me of the strength of those matrilineal, your matrilineal uh, uh, cultures and, and systems of uh, ways of being that gives me hope that, you know, and we were talking about sovereign wealth funds and I said, well, why couldn't we return to a system in which every clan owns a unit, a unit of the of the trust, collectively? Like we share in the risk, we share in the assets, we share in the abundance. Um, you know, you can adopt potlatch from the West Coast. I mean, there's so many beautiful things that point, I think, to a an economy of hope, um, of true abundance, right? Uh, and and reconciling, I think that artificial separation of church and state or, or at least spirit, uh, our spirituality and our inherent, um, that inner knowing that you talk about. And I think that's what excites me is that we all have that inner knowing. We know that this thing is messed up. We know there's a better way. 
and we still have a remnant in, in you and your people that says we know this there's this other way that that we haven't lost knowing about right so have you considered uh sort of the community then uh, within the community i mean you asked me a question about what do we see as as uh, the economies of a community other than a dollar bill so we're not talking about a dollar bill we're talking about something well, into the future th that's what i'm I, i'm posing the question and you know i think we talked about if i had a chance to go back to uh onondaga uh or wherever mohawk um oneida to say i think you have the best opportunity to move in the direction that i've um that i'm trying to write about or articulate which is uh, a true uh, distributed sovereign wealth fund that we all have a share in right and there's no hierarchy of power uh, uh, or the, and and so but that raises some huge challenges because we're not accustomed to behaving this way right uh, we're accustomed to the elected to the dominator system of of governance and elected uh, so how do we gently return to uh, that wiser system i think again so with the we, primacy yeah. The, yeah one of the examples i think i gave you which i think is is really clear here is uh, the grand river enterprises which is a, a that started out with two little machines down on one end of the reserve here and they grew into now uh, 20 years later uh, the second or third largest tobacco company in the world Wow. They are now growing from, they're now growing their own tobacco. They are, they are manufacturing, they're harvesting their own, manufacturing, processing, right from the ground up. Wow. And now we see this new tobacco called marijuana. <laughs> exactly. And again, I mean, we, we, we view that, some, some of us view it as a real positive uh, economic engine. Mm -hmm. And some view it as uh, a disaster waiting to happen because of the whole drug addiction stuff. Right. And, you know, it depends on how you look at it. But when you talk about economies, there's economies. If we were to keep that money within from the tobacco industry, which they're sending off over $200 million. They're the talking about leakage, right? Yeah. That's the leakage stuff. That's above and beyond the leakage. Is that yeah, really yeah. specific? So, you know, when we look at sort of those uh uh tobacco marijuana whether it's food supplies and grew our own we got a lot yeah. of open land here where we grow our own supplies have our own mills whatever you know i mean that's the kind of system where we're 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 growing from within that's fantastic and we're, sh we're sharing with one another yeah. we're sharing with one another our peoples across the country maybe that's not so fortunate to have flat lands and agricultural lands Okay, what do you got to trade? You got lobster out there in, in the Atlantic? All right, let's barter on the lobster then. You got logs in your territory? We need housing. We got mills where we're doing lumbers, lumber to build. You got, you, got, you got logs? We'll trade you for logs. You know, that whole system, something like that. Yeah, and I know that's what Christian uh, Sinclair is trying to pursue in uh, Onondaga with with the Mi'kmaq and uh, New Brunswick and others, like to reestablish those trade routes, you know. Yes. Uh, those trade relationships. So lobster for, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Saskatoon, Barry, et cetera. So, um, 
actually on, on the tobacco front, that's fascinating. Are those, uh, is that tobacco being grown on reserve lands or? Um, other I own 50 acres here. I own 50 acres. You own 50 acres yourself. Wow. I got, I own 50 acres and I, uh, I planted tobacco over the last couple of years. Yeah. The whole, the whole acreage is tobacco. Wow. And uh, yeah, all of our community, many, many community members are leasing their land out to grow tobacco for the big tobacco industry. So in terms of, uh, I've got a bag of Indian tobacco from Orrin Lyons, and I assume it's not laced like the, <laughs> the other the tobacco is. Is there such a thing as, I assume there's such a thing as healthy and good Indian tobacco versus uh, the stuff that uh, leads to cancer? Yeah, so here, these products here that come out of here, they are not, uh, they do not have been pesticides and the things that they talk about. You're, you're, you're a big corporation like Rothmans and Players and Export A, they don't have, they have uh, uh, the healthy tobacco. Right. But, but when we talk about the tobacco from Orange Lions, that's a different story in terms of that kind of tobacco. So, it's uh, sacred tobacco, we so, call it. So they're selling out of their smoke shop from the reserve land, uh, Onondaga is, and it's a huge source of revenue. Is you don't have to get too far down this rabbit hole, but what are the op options for? I'm, I think we, the the answer is obvious from the news, but what are the options for uh, Ontario and, and Quebec, uh, uh, Mohawk, etc., of selling as the Onondaga do out of their own reserve stores or? Oh, they're already doing it. They've been doing it for 20 years. We've got, uh, we probably have a hundred smoke shops here. Wow. hundred smoke shops, but it's, but it's only from within the territory. We can't get right. that product out in the con convenience stores off reserve. Right. So they have to come to your reserve. They lands. have to come to our, our communities to yeah. buy. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'll so I, uh, I had a meeting with the Ontario, uh, uh, uh Attorney General, a couple of years ago on the whole question of uh, cannabis, because I uh, was responsible for uh, wealth creation in our community, mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to put our own law in place, which we did, uh, and I, I went further to have a meeting with the Attorney General of Ontario. To We were putting our own custom law in place here, and a law, not a bylaw, a law, nation law on cannabis. Right. So our traditional homelands is downtown Toronto. Yeah. And in terms of being able to put a put a facility on our on our own territory, territory. That, the perimeter is called the reserve right now. Yeah. Yeah. So our law would cover that. But I wanted our law to cover downtown Toronto as well. Ah. So so there's a clause in the uh, in the cannabis law that talks about harmonization. So we put our law in place where we could uh, have harmonization with the province of Ontario and with the federal health Canada regulations that we could open a shop downtown in Toronto too, but it's our law. And we've said our law supersedes any other law. And so that gives us the right to start the cannabis shop here and open up a shop within the territories. And once Ontario comes to term with this, with the harmonization side, then we can open up one downtown in Toronto. So, in, so theory, thought, in theory, you could sell tobacco too. Of course. But yeah, of we course. have to, the problem that we have is we have to have Ontario stamps 
with that tobacco. That's the fight. Ah, that we we right. don't want to put an Ontario stamp on yeah. the tobacco. Right. We want our First Nation stamp on the tobacco. Right, right, right. So anyway, I met with the uh, Attorney General and he was kind enough to have a meeting with us together with my chief and some other council colleagues. And I, uh, I posed a question to him to have our own uh, uh, criminal code law under gaming, under tobacco, under uh, cannabis, so that we could put our own Ontario-wide uh, alcohol and gaming commission in place where they would be separate from the province of Ontario. Mm. His eyebrows were raised and he said, I, I've never been asked that before. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, those are just elements that I think we should look at bigger outside the territories that we can work and start to frame our own uh, economic engines. Right, right. Well, this has been a, a lively and wide-ranging conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so well, we, yeah. still, we still can't, Mark, we still have to go back to this whole beginnings, and that is yeah. the whole issue of doctrine of discovery. Those still plague us today. Terra still plagues us today. The whole Indian problem still plagues us today. So, and, uh, so coming as, as is so often the case, come full circle, what, what do you propose uh, is the strategy, if you're talking strategy of dealing with that historical doctrine, the James A., you know, when we read those documents and the his negotiators notes, it's like you shake your head and you're like, wow, how many Canadians are aware, you know, how aware is Mr. Trudeau or anybody in his caucus of these egregious um, things that, that happened. And, and I, my hope is that when people become aware of it, I mean, you can ignore it. You can say, oh, that was, that was John A. And, you know, he was drinking too much whiskey or something, but uh, these things are, are a matter of, of truth and, and they were they were written down they were codified statements um, what what is your hope that we as Canadians can return to I think what I would say is a celebration of this beautiful sacred place Ganeta. so I've uh, I've thought about that question for a long time and uh, I told you I think in an email that uh, I am right on the verge now of launching what we call salt mines <laughs> and that that is uh that is on i'm looking at a youtube channel and uh my whole concept has been canadians don't understand the first nations right right the first nations don't understand canadians and we got a, this mishmash of issues that even our own community members don't understand why the chiefs and councils i sent you documents on the dysfunctional governments internally here so so salt mines is, uh, I, I'm launching that to be a, a teaching tool, if you will, an educational tool of real live people Fantastic. Talking, talking about the terra nullius issue, talking about the discovery and challenging not only each other, but challenging the Canadian public in terms of mm. here's what we're talking about here, just so you understand. So I'm hoping that that would turn into a, uh, some sort of an e-commerce. I mean, uh, you know, we all got to, we all got to eat, survive. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, I'm, I got a book right now, 21 things 
Oh. He didn't know about the Indian Act. Fantastic. By so, uh, who's so, the author again? Uh, Joseph? Bob Joseph. Bob Joseph. Oh, Bob wow. Bob Joseph. He's a former chief in British Columbia, and he's got his own uh, consulting company. But I'm going to uh, walk through this book, issue by issue, on, on, our, on our... On your platform. YouTube, Perfect. YouTube platform. Channel. Yeah. One by one, we're going to pick it apart. One by one, we're going to, we're going to raise issues specifically to that, that issue and many more. Yeah, The yeah. whole UNDRIP issue, UNDRIP right now, Canada is discussing Bill C-15. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. That's what I want our own people to understand as well as the non-Native community to understand. How do we fit into the Canadian mosaic? In fact, yeah. how do we fit into the international mosaic? Right? So that's what I'm trying to do. And uh, I suppose we'll face our bumps and bruises, but that's sort of the concept of how we're trying to uh, deal with the Canadian public, how we're trying to deal with our own people, and to be able to come to terms with some of the things you and I are talking about, even maybe having you on the program. Let's talk A to B here. Let's talk A, B, C. I'd love to. You know, as first generation German, you know, woods tribesman. uh, No Indigenous Mm -hmm. roots whatsoever. Me, I'm saying, I'd be happy to be on your show. And uh, talking to the original uh, indigenous salt miner. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I told you the story about my great grandfather. My great grandfather didn't move when the government moved us from York. And uh, I got he, pictures of my great grandfather. He, <laughs> he didn't move. Why? It's because he had a he had a mail order business. He was a medicine man. And he was, <laughs> people would send him written letters telling, telling him their symptoms. He would send them in the mail medicine dealing with their symptoms. He was a doctor. He was a physician. Wow. His death certificate was his physician. Jeez. So, I mean, he was before his time in the 1800s sending medicines all over North America. Wow. So it's like, okay, I got that DNA. <laughs> you know, it pumps so, me to think I got the DNA. So remind you, you have a, uh... Uh, how do you say the Haudenosaunee? Haudenosaunee uh, roots on your grandmother's side. On your both my great grandmothers were Mohawk. Mohawk, okay. Which, which my 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 mother, yeah, is from Six Nations of the Grand River, right? And a lot of the Mississauga communities intermarried into the Haudenosaunee, into the Six Nations, and uh, my my. Uh, mother before she passed she never would talk to me about this i asked her all kinds of questions Mm. she wouldn't talk to me and uh, before she passed she told me that i was basically wolf clan oh wow you know wolf clan mohawk wolf clan so i i've been at the confederacy the the haudenosaunee confederacy sitting on the mohawk bench watching the dynamics of their politics and and how they do business as a speaker and how the each uh each uh, nation speaks Mm. in their language in the in the uh, confederacy council how the women interact i wanted to understand the dynamics right so i just go right in there and sit in the morning right of course yeah. yeah and on your father's side my father's side is uh, uh ojibwe just straight ojibwe and uh my haudenosaunee roots from my mother's side is matrilineal right and of course on my dad's side is opposite ah so, interesting uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty a, a tightrope, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so, how is it opposite? What is it because it's patrilineal on the Ojibwe, um, or no? Patrilineal, 
yeah, yeah. So very male dominated. Interesting. I always thought the Ojibwe would be softer and more matrilineal, but no. How no. many? How many do you th- in Canada would you say are matrilineal versus patrilineal? Like, what's the uh, split? Like, what are Cree more? Yeah, you know what? You know what? That's a good question, Mark. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Probably the Algonquins. All of the Algonquin is probably all which we're a part of the Algonquin Nation. So we're probably all uh, all patrilineal. And Algonquin being Anishinaabe? Yeah. Yeah. So you got Anishinaabe, even though we we sort of got these general words. Yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you, Larry. That was fantastic. As always. Yeah, okay.